Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Faith Journeys podcast. My name is Brad. I am your host. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring different people's journeys of faith. Look, I believe each and every one of us is on a journey of faith, regardless of religion or creed. And I believe faith goes deeper than just attending a religious worship, and that it guides and leads our lives through the best of times and through the worst of times. And it is my hope that through this podcast, we can see that each of us has a journey to take and that along that journey, we are never alone. Well, today's guest is a friend of mine, uh, Sharik Abdul Ghani. Sharik is the director of the Minaret Foundation, an organization focused on building relationships through interfaith policy and media engagement. For the past 10 years, Sharik has regularly spoken at faith centers, conferences, and educational institutions on topics ranging from American Muslim identity to faith-based activism and spirituality. Previously, he co-founded Houston Leadership Academy, an organization geared towards developing young Muslims into leadership and activist roles. He is also a graduate student in Homeland Security. His Bio says at the best university in the South, Texas A&M, this Longhorn might have a disagreement with that. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, but Shark's passion is finding intersections between communities for collaboration and mutual growth. Shark, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you, Brad. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, and as I mentioned, and it's in my bio, so it's official. Best university in the South. Texas. <laughs> oh, does that make it official now? Okay, it is. I, mean, I don't know what to tell you. It's printed. <laughs> It's printed. <laughs> well, then I'm going to need to change my bio then, <laughs> and, and uh, we'll work on that. <laughs> and sorry, I, you know, I was trying to remember when and how we actually actually met. Uh, I think it was through a mutual friend of ours, Steve Quill. Is that right? Is it was. That, it was through. Who, yeah, it was through who I like to call the Godfather of interfaith. <laughs> yes, um, someone who gave me a launch in my in my multi faith career, uh, the Reverend Steve Quill. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, Steve is a champion of, of interfaith uh, collaboration for sure. Uh, that's important uh, nowadays, isn't it? Um, interfaith relationships. I know uh, as I've been a pastor now, 15, 16 years, it seems more important now than it did, you know, 10, 15 years from uh, ago and that there's just more of it happening. And it's a really great thing. Um, wh what do you see are the benefits of, of interfaith partnerships? Well, you, you've got the traditional benefits of getting to know one another, increasing understanding, um, sort of removing the obstacles of hating or hurting one another, mm -hmm. um, or removing the obstacles from loving one another, right? Because right, right. So in, in, interfaith work in that way is, is really good, but there's also some really other good and wonderful aspects of interfaith work um, that come out incidentally from programming. And that could be because you get to know one another, you understand the commonalities and you live and you work together. It's this word called normalization. Right, right. We shouldn't have to do interfaith work. We should just live together. We should just be one with one another. We should just, it should come out of the womb respecting one another, right? Absolutely. Like kids playing on the playground, they don't see a difference. But the reason that we have to do interfaith work is because we're programmed or we end up seeing these differences, but highlighting these differences at such a level of saying, well, you're this. I'm this, but when we do interfaith work and we come together, it's, hey, why don't we just build that house together? Or, you know, I see that problem at the legislature. You want to fix it together? Let's, let's just do it together. It's just, that's, you end up becoming friends and you end up becoming stronger neighbors. And that's what I like more, most about interfaith work. It's not the conversations and the dialogue. It's what happens after that, adding each other on Facebook, following each other on Twitter, getting into arguments very publicly on Facebook, maybe, but then reconciling very publicly as well, just <laughs> yeah. as any other friend would. 
Absolutely. Because, you know, uh, let's go back to your example of building a house, right? Uh, the boards and the nails don't know Muslim from Jew, Jew from Christian, and the people who are going to live in that house, that's their house. It doesn't Absolutely. matter who built it and, and how it came to be. The end result is, is the home, right? That's right. Um, and, and yeah, I, yeah, I think we focus so much more on our differences than we do our, our similarities. And I, I think that often gets in the way the most. Um, why is it that we have this tendency to focus on the differences rather than the, rather than what we have in, in common? You, you know, and that's, that's a really good question. And I'll say I'm guilty of that. And, and I'll tell you why. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So from, from a Muslim's perspective, I, I believe the reason that a Muslim does interfaith work may be different from the reason a evangelical Christian may do um, interfaith work from a mainline Protestant, from an Orthodox Jew. So on. everyone's got their perspectives on why we're doing interfaith work. I got into doing interfaith work from a survival standpoint. <laughs> My neighbors did not know who I was. Neighboring churches had no idea who we were. And post 9-11, there was a strong suspicion that was cast upon our entire community mm -hmm. whoever we were we could have been your neighbors for 30 years but all of a sudden we have you know this red aura of suspicion hovering around us um we'd seen what happened to other communities and minority groups around the world we'd even seen what happened to minority groups here in the united states um, a few decades before we wanted to ensure and i wanted to ensure that that history would not have been repeated. So for me and, and the people that I worked with, interfaith was more of a survival concept. Um, we had to tell the churches around us who we are, um, dispel, any notion, uh, dis dispel any ill notions. Um, but we also had to start building relationships because this lens of suspicion could lead to other things. Um, yeah. It could lead to hate. It could, or it could just lead to discrimination. It could lead to, it could lead to a variety of things. So that's the reason that we started doing interfaith work. And and when we do interfaith work, it wasn't just about focusing on the similarities, but it was understanding our differences. Because coming from a survival perspective, people did not like us because of X, Y, and Z. Well, we had to explain these differences for people to understand why 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 these differences don't necessarily matter or why they do, but, and then pivot to the similarities that we have. So in most of the conversations that we had in interfaith work, I'd say in maybe the first five to six years of Minaret Foundation was focused on differences, but then pivoting to the similarities, right? Meaning why, what our story of uh, Jesus Christ, peace be upon him is what our story of God looks like, what our story of Noah and Lot looks like, focusing on these differences, but then pivoting to the similarities, meaning the morality and the lessons that come out of Noah, the morality and the lessons that come out of Lot, who we, why we feel Jesus Christ is one of the best men that has ever walked the face of this planet, um, and why his, uh, why, why his mother, the Virgin Mary, is uh, just astounding. Mm -hmm. So pivoting the similarities was important because we had to, because again, the, the, the way that the world viewed the Muslim community, maybe even some respects still now was out of a lens of fear. So mm -hmm. we had to tell them why we did things in a certain way. Right. Um, but now, now it's, I don't know why we focus on our differences so much. Maybe it's because we want to remove that obstacle of fear and make it easier to talk to one another. Maybe That's because good. we still view each other through a lens of fear. I'm actually processing this now as I'm talking to you. Maybe <laughs> because we view each other through the lenses of fear. Look at this, this, this mask issue that just happened. Yesterday, the governor right. um, dropped down, dropped the mask mandate. Um, on Nextdoor and on our neighborhood Facebook, it's like battles are waging between, there's lists that are being created, which, which grocery stores and which restaurants will enforce a mask, uh, a, mask, um, a mask mandate. And then the other side is saying, well, now we have a list of organizations that hate freedom. So we won't visit there. It's, it's, we don't, if we at least understood the baseline of our differences, we wouldn't call each other un-American. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, um, I uh, recently read, um, uh, speaking of fear, um, I recently read, uh, it, was, it, it was in Jay Shetty's book, actually. Um, and uh, he uh, was talking about uh, fear. And, and in it, he said, uh, you know, it's not, this goes back to, I guess, uh, something that uh, FDR said, you know, we don't have to, only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And um, he talked about, um, I'm going to see, because I actually have um, the quote right here um, with me. He says, um, uh, fear itself is not our real problem. Our real problem is that we fear the wrong things. What we should really fear is that we will miss the opportunities that fear offers. And I've been thinking about that um, a lot. Um, and especially when it comes to fear and um, have been, you know, in, in scripture, um, it talks a lot about, you know, God says, do not fear. And in the Christian scriptures, it's 356 times. Well, does do not fear mean not have any fear whatsoever? Uh, probably not. Um, but it's, in my, in my view now, as I'm looking at it, maybe it's like, don't fear the fear you know, um, change the way you look at things, make it not so much a negative, but make, make it a positive. And what can you learn from that? Um, we often miss that. There's opportunities for us to learn um, in the midst of our fear. Um, but when we view it in a negative way, <laughs> we shut down, right? And I think that's maybe when the, uh, the, those people and them over there, and we focus on our differences, maybe that's when it, uh, it begins to uh, get in the way uh, of, uh, of us looking in our, at our similarities. Um, and we focus on those, those differences even more. Well, it, w without, I guess fear, fear can be, there's can be a couple of impulses from fears. You either run away from it or you run to it or you just stand and you just stare at it like like deer in headlights right I think when it comes to when it comes to community building and community relations when we see fear we can't run away from it and we can't afford to stare at it we have to go and approach it and so oftentimes what i say whenever i go to a church or a synagogue or a rotary club or anywhere um i i, I usually invite people um, as my last action i invite them to conquer their fears and to be the first ones that reach their hands across the aisle, just to extend their hands and say, hello, I am so-and-so, here's an apple pie, and this is what I care about, just to have some kind of a conversation. Because if we're breaking those barriers, then fear sort of seems to dissipate on its own. Right. Fear can't survive. If fear can't survive at all in the midst of conversation, it just doesn't happen, especially when you start to view the other person as a human being rather than just an object in a story. Absolutely, absolutely. You, we touched a little bit on, um, you know, we were both from different faith traditions, um, but we really have a lot of similarities uh, between, between Christianity and, and Islam. What do you think is the one thing people miss about how similar our two faith traditions are? Oh, he's saying one thing, and do I have at least five hours? Or... <laughs> um... One or two. You can go beyond that. But but what if you were to highlight what what are the you know these are the big ones, and you know oh my gosh we can't we can't let these go by um, without recognizing that this is these are the similarities between us. So two things that I would mention. One is the story of of Jesus and his blessed mother, Mary, or who in our tradition we call Mariam. Um, that's one. And the second is our family values, right? How important family is in our, in, in our religion. And these two things, I, I, I believe, and, and I say these, I, I mentioned these two points because these are the same, these are, this is what I'm asked about the most whenever I go to a church. It's like, tell me about this. And then usually the other question has to, has to revolve around either family values or revolves around um, family ties and what, 
when I say family ties, I also mean the role my sisters play, the role my mother plays, my wife plays, the role that I play. Um, so just an understanding what the family structure looks like. And I, I think we have very strong similarities between our friends in the Christian faith, overall Christian faith, um, mm -hmm. not just amongst my friends in the Lutheran tradition, but friends just overall in the Christian faith. But the, from, so from a creedal perspective, it's definitely the story of Jesus Christ and his mother, Mary. Excellent. Excellent. Um, what does your faith mean to you? This is a podcast about uh, faith and uh, the journeys we take um, and how faith plays a role. Um, what does your faith mean to you? My faith is a guideline for how I need to conduct my life. Uh, it used to mean to me, and I'll, I'll tell you, when I was, when I was much younger, and um, I, I won't say I'm a born-again Muslim. Uh, <laughs> it something completely different. But when, how about this? When I was in middle school and high school, I wasn't necessarily practicing. Uh -huh. I really started to re-examine my faith after the Twin Towers fell. And I know that sounds a little, that sounds strange, but after the Twin Towers fell and we heard all this stuff on Hollywood and all the stuff coming out of the news media and from our elected officials and even my neighbors, it, it gave me pause. And mm -hmm. I wanted to re-examine what my faith was and what my parents would teach me, what I learned in Sunday school at the mosque. I knew none of it was true, meaning I knew none of the rhetoric was true, but I wanted to re-examine it and make sure that I had textual references. And in identifying those textual references and identifying what it looked like, that's when I really started becoming more of, you know, a quote unquote practicing Muslim, uh -huh. praying more, going Fridays, fasting, um, so on and so forth. But at that point, when I'm sort of start, I don't know, is it like this with Christians as well? When Christians start practicing again, like the born again Christian concept, everyone's hardcore. We oh, have to absolutely. do X, Y, and Z. <laughs> You, you know, can and you can see them. You can see them from afar because they they have a glow. They're on fire. We could say on fire with the Holy Spirit, <laughs> even though the Holy Spirit was there the whole time. But yeah, it's just like you know they got jacked up on you know five cases of Mountain Dew. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But then, then everyone who's not on the same spirit is they're a little less than. Right. 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 So. Yeah, so I guess I was a little bit like that, and I was very rigid in my understanding of what Islam was. But then, you know, sort of as, as you grow older, you meet newer people, you travel a lot more. Um, so my my faith really became a guideline, just like this, just framework of how I'm supposed to conduct myself, how I'm supposed to live. So it 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 informs my decision making, whether it be here at the nonprofit, at my business, with my family. Um, and it gets me to do things that I may not have done before. And I'll give you an example. Um, there is a saying of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that says that if you remove an obstruction from a pathway, if you remove an obstruction from a pathway, that that could be your key to paradise. Meaning, if there is a branch, if there is a large tree branch or debris in the road as I'm driving down Harlem or Grand Parkway, I will pull over. Mm -hmm. um, I'll walk back and I'll remove that debris from the road. Not because I want to. And let me tell you, there's, there's been times that I've passed debris on the road. I'm like, ah, yeah, I'm not. It's raining outside. <laughs> then I'll slow down and pull over on the shoulder and be like, but maybe that's the key. Maybe that's what this sinner needs, right? Yeah. Maybe that's what this sinner needs. And I'll pull <laughs> over and I'll put like, I'll find something, put it over my head and go pull it out from, from the pathway. So it, it informs my decision-making sometimes willingly and unwillingly because I trust that what God gave me, this guidance, this framework is for my best, mm -hmm. right? Is, is for, the, for my best outcome, right? So it informs my decision-making is what I would say. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I, I'm the same way. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, faith shouldn't be just a one hour a week uh, uh, thing, right? It should, it should be an everyday thing. I know at, at the congregation I serve, uh, our purpose statement at the very end, it's, it says every day, right? Um, love God, love others, 
seek to be better disciples every day, that this is an everyday process. Um, we learn every day. We try to get better every day. We try to live it out every day. Um, and some days it's more of a struggle than others. I don't know about you, but it, it's, it's like, do you ever feel like, man, I would just want to put this on the back burner <laughs> some days and God, I just don't want to do this today <laughs> because I know in, in, in what I do as a pastor and, and, and everything, it's like, you know, God, I, I don't love your sheep today very much. I, it's like, I'm having a difficulty. Uh, do I have to be nice to this guy? <laughs> right. Do I yeah. have to be like, please, why? But those moments are, those moments sometimes can be a little extra special because you find yourself overcoming perhaps your own ego or your own desires or the motions in your heart for the greater good, that greater purpose of God. Absolutely. Right? And, and, and then that maybe reinforces or cements the relationship a little bit better because you can look in that other dude's face and say, and think to yourself, I really dislike you, but I'm going to smile and go through all the motions and respect you outwardly because that's what God wants me to do. And when you do that, it's almost as if when you walk away, you feel better about yourself. You, you know, those moments of regret. I had those moments of regret when I didn't invest in GameStop when I should have. <laughs> when it was going up, I should have invested. Right, in yeah. Invested in my gut and that regret that you have. So yeah. when, when, when you overcome that sense of ego or that dislike for good reason sometimes, oftentimes, yeah. and, you, and, you, and you're nice to the other person for the sake of God, um, you walk away and you don't have that sense of regret. It's like you caught the GameStop wave. Like, I didn't want to do it, but I did it. I invested in GameStop and I came out with it. <laughs> Truth. <Sorry. laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and I think in those moments, we learn something about ourselves too. Um, and, and we experience, we experience God's grace in those moments because let's face it, God gives us the same thing every day. And we aren't the most uh, well-behaved children um, every day, you know? And, and I think it's in those moments where I glimpse those God moments that God has with me when I'm a difficult child, right? right? And, and I think uh, for me, some of the most humbling moments um, in my ministry is when I do have that issue uh, with a parishioner and yet they come up for the sacrament of Holy Communion. They hold out their hand and I say the body of Christ given for you. And I, I, I put the bread in their hands and I remember, you know, every friend of God is a friend of mine. And um, the sacrament is for them just as much as it is for me. And we learn something about um uh, forgiveness we learn something about grace and love um and we grow in those moments and i think we we need to force ourselves like you said not to be paralyzed and not to run but to be present in those moments uh with others yeah and and, and, and you know this this concept of forgiveness which is which is so wonderful that you know as, as you're saying putting our faith on pause because this this other person it, you know, there's a saying in the, that the prophet Muhammad peace be upon him said, he said that God told him directly that my mercy overcomes my wrath. He also wow. said that if, that if, if man were to commit as many sins, as much as the foam of the seas, I would forgive all of them if they were to ask. And what that tells me what that, and what, what I usually preach is that it could be the most vile person on the face of this planet. But if he finds a way to connect to God for even a moment, and he asks forgiveness of his or her sins, then he may be forgiven. So it makes it easier sometimes to overcome my feelings of dislike or resentment towards mm. that person or that relative should i say uh-huh yeah uh, because yeah. um you know 
it's not that who am I to judge because I guess I'm a human being and I'm one of those people that says, well, human beings judge, but it's how you use that judgment and what you do with it. Like what's the next step? And so I may see that person as not the best person in the world, but for the sake of God, I'm going to overcome it. But I'm also going to realize that this person might be cleaner than I am, maybe better than I am because before an interaction, what if they had connected with God? What if they are completely forgiven? And what if then I am transgressing or being aggressive with someone who is closer to God now than I am? Because only right. God knows the statuses that we're at, right? Absolutely. Uh, that's it. There's, a, there's a passage in the Quran uh, that essentially says what, what I like to call the caste system, um, the caste system for humanity. And it's not based upon... It's not based upon how much money you have or what title you have, but it's based upon your good deeds. Uh-huh. And we don't know how many good deeds a person has and how close they are to God in terms of worship. Um, and that's, that's the real caste system is, is we, we're different. We differ with others. Um, we have diff- we're different in the eyes of God in terms of where we stand with our deeds and how we're close to him. Um, not based upon the wealth that we have or the titles that we hold. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree. Um, so we talked a little bit about your faith, um, Shark. Uh, what's the most misunderstood thing um, about Islam? <laughs> well, if you're going to ask me that when I was in elementary school or middle school, I, I would say the most misunderstood thing is, is that, yes, we do eat meat and we love it. Because <laughs> when I was in elementary school and middle school, that I was, and even in high school, that was yes. before 9-11, no one knew who we were. Yeah. So everyone thought like, you know, because you're, not, you're, you're Indian, I'm not Indian. I'd always have to tell people <laughs> that my parents come from the, from the country next to India. It's a place called Pakistan. Whether they believe me or not, it's a whole different issue. Right. But obviously after 9-11, everyone knew where Pakistan was. Yeah, right. Uh, but before it was like, hey, you can't eat meat, right? It's like, come on. You know, we literally have a day where we sacrifice a goat or a ram or a cow and we just feast. <laughs> uh, so we're like the opposite. PETA hates us. They might even have an issues page on their website, you know, going all anti <laughs> because of how much meat we consume nice. um, as, as a people. But, um, you know, I, I, I would say the most misunderstood aspect of who we are um, as a people is our relationship to the society that we live in. Mm-hmm. We're still viewed in many respects as a foreign religion. Mm-hmm. We're still viewed in many respects as the other or this foreign body that is just, that's just in, that's just in, um, in the United States. It, it, there was a, there was a movie it was with Matt Damon. I want to say it was Goodwill Hunting. I don't remember, but he, he played a CIA agent. No, that wasn't Goodwill Hunting. He played a CIA agent and he was visiting the house of uh, an Italian, Italian mafia of the Italian mafia. And they're having a conversation back and forth. Um, and he's talking about how the Italians are so impressed and the mafia is so impressed and that everyone's seen as the mafia. And then, you know, forgive me, I, I don't remember the exact conversation, but he said something very profound. Um, he, he, he said that, um, he said, you're just visiting, right? Like alluding to the idea mm-hmm. that you're Italian, you're just visiting in America. Like I live here you're just visiting like this is my country you're just visiting and i get that feeling a lot even even to this day of people just feel like we're visiting like we're not actually here to stay but people don't realize that um you know i think it's either 23 or 26 percent of slaves who came to who were forced to america into slavery were actually muslims the first country to recognize the United States was a Muslim country, even before France. The longest treaty that the United States still has today is with France. There's an inscription and a picture of Muhammad, peace be upon him, in the Supreme Court. Like the original, like the, the original mural, there's an inscription. Thomas Jefferson owned a Quran. 
Muslims fought in the Revolutionary War. Uh-huh. In, 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 in the Revolutionary War alongside George Washington. Um, the Muslim community has been here for a long time. The Muslim community built Ford. I mean, built Ford. Ford, Ford literally transplanted entire villages from the area now known as Lebanon to Detroit into Dearborn, which by the way, Dearborn is the largest population of Arabs outside of the Middle East because of Henry Ford. Wow. Muslims helped build for the whole empire. Um, we've been here for a long time. So it, it, it's just that the largest immigration wave happened in 1965 after Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Immigration and Naturalization Act. But not only have we been here for a very long time, but um, we're part and parcel of this great nation, of this idea, of this experiment. Um, and, and, you know, when we talk to because uh, we, we have the same issue with Muslims, by the way. It's not just with people who are, you know, have been living here for 10 generations. It's mm -hmm. dealing with British Muslims, French Muslims, Norwegian Muslims, you know, Germanic Muslims. They give us the same flag. They're like, you know, you're not really American. Uh, you know, they say it in their own accent because they're not really French and they're not really British. They're not really German. And that's uh. the difference between... European Muslims and American Muslims. See, European Muslims, you might be able to say they're just visiting, even though they've been there for three, four, five generations, because to be French, there's an ethnic component attached to it. Right. To be German, there's an ethnic component component to be attached to it. No matter how liberal their society becomes and say, oh, we're you're we're all Germans, yada, yada, yada. That's true to an extent. Right. But with America, because it's an idea, it's not an ethnicity. It's, it's an idea. We're all Americans. Anyone who has that blue passport or anyone who aspires to be, you know, we could talk about that gray line of what that means, but anyone who's got a blue passport, who's American, who you're American. That's it. Right. There's no, there's no, I, there's no ethnicity. There's no religion attached to it. You live in our borders or you don't live on our borders. As long as you're a citizen and you pledge loyalty to the United States of America, you're an American. And so, Pakistani Muslims don't get that. British Muslims don't get that because it's such a beautiful and it's such a unique concept. Right. I, I, think, I think it's easier for an immigrant or the children of Im recent immigrants, because we're all immigrants at one mm -hmm. point, the mm -hmm. children of recent immigrants to really embody and understand that. Whereas people who've lived here for multiple generations, it might be a little bit more difficult to digest and to, and to understand. Love that. Love that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Minaret Foundation. Tell, tell, uh, tell our listeners um, uh, what it is, uh, what its purpose is, um, what you do um, out there so that they can become more aware of, of this wonderful organization that you have introduced me to um, here recently. Well, our focus is to lift the voices of American Muslims for sustainable change through multi-faith and civic engagement. That's our fancy mission. <laughs> what we do is we create programmatic touch points between mosques, synagogues, and churches. And we hope to answer that age-old question of now that we've held hands, we've sung Kumbaya, what do we do next? Right. There's, there's many avenues of what to do next, like Habitat for Humanity, so on and so forth. But for us, that next step is advocacy work, working, use, leveraging our faith to change policy, um, to change the community around us through, through, through this concept of policy work and advocacy work. Um, so what that means in practical terms uh, is we're working on issues domestically related to the school to prison pipeline. We have, we have a bill that's almost finished being drafted um, in the state legislature, which prevents children from being handcuffed in the Texas public school system. And if your listeners are thinking, well, wait a second, children are handcuffed? You mean 10th graders? No, I'm talking about kindergartners. Kindergartners in our school system in the wow. state of Texas are handcuffed, wow. right? And I could say it disproportionately affects people of color and, and it does, but it, the frank thing is it affects all children. Sometimes people forget that the poor black kids are affected just as much as the poor white kids living in, in rural, rural areas. And so we have, to, we have to work for everyone. 
Um, so, and, and by the way, Brad, you know how you handcuff a child? I do not. I, I have you a can't handcuff them. You yeah, can't I, handcuff I have a kindergartner. I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah, and, and their wrists are too small. They can wiggle out of it. You have to handcuff them at their shoulders. Jeez. That's how you handcuff a child, is you handcuff a kindergartner or a first grader at their shoulders. But we're, we've been able to work with law enforcement for this bill, as well as advocates of uh, children's welfare. So it's a, it's a really bipartisan issue. Another issue that we're working on um, is related to food insecurity. Uh, and so when I talk about policy work, what I mean is, is the broad strokes. So it's, it's really nice to be able to give away boxes of groceries and water and just food to sustain a family. That's wonderful. And the Houston Food Bank, many of our faith partners, many organizations do that. And that has to be done. But there's also this other component of policies. Why is it that they have to do that? Why are we in this situation and how do we solve the situation over the period of one to three years, one to five years or one to 10 years, or if you're like me, by tomorrow. Uh, so, so Messiah Lutheran Church doesn't have to give away boxes of food anymore. Mm -hmm. So they can move on to something else now. So we're working on creating a food security commission for the city of Houston. It'll be multi-faith based, but it'll also have stakeholders from, from around the area as well, um, who will work on creating policies for systemic change over the long term. So we don't have this issue of food insecurity. And there's a plethora of issues. And then we, and then um, what we find that attracts a lot of our friends in, in, um, in different faith traditions is working on issues related to religious freedom overseas. So mm -hmm. the persecution of Christians, the persecution of Muslims, specifically as it relates to China, as it relates to Syria, and as it relates to some African nations. We're part of the International Religious Freedom Roundtable. And so we work with different, yeah. like the National Councils of Churches um, on issues related to uh, the persecution of Christians and Muslims overseas. Excellent, excellent. I, I love the, um, the view that you have on, on the food, right? I always, what I've learned in my um, work overseas in Africa, working with children in education and things like that is um, there's a difference between charity and ministry. Uh, charity is always the short term. Ministry is always the long, long haul. And you have to address both of them, right? Uh, any of us can write a check. Um, it's going to take care of the, of the short term. Um, but ministry is walking with and making sure that in the long haul, like you said, um, there isn't a need to hand out those boxes, right? Uh, By the way, can I, do I attribute that to you? That's absolutely yeah <laughs> no oh i didn't steal it from anybody that's me <laughs> oh my god that is that is beautiful i i would be honored absolutely <laughs> uh so what uh let faith always plays a role so what role did your faith play in you becoming director of the minaret foundation what was it that said that that made you say this is something that i have to do you know it started off as just an interfaith organization where i found myself explaining what islam was mm -hmm. um and that was that for the first several years and the reason that i did that again was what was fear-based was also to provide a better understanding of who their neighbor is um who, who we are as muslims it pivoted slowly to advocacy work and the reason it pivoted is because creating all these great relations, we're doing all this great work, we're learning about one another, but then we just get stuck. What do we do next? And everyone homes and that's being done already. And everyone wants to volunteer at the soup kitchen. That's being done already. And I'm an entrepreneur. I like to do things that no one else is doing. Find empty markets or find, um, you know, find, find the vacuum. Exactly. Uh, and, and I'm not saying we're the only ones working in this space. Uh, there's a couple of other wonderful organizations like Texas Impact mm -hmm. um, are, are doing it at a state level, but we're the only ones working in this space from the Muslim community, meaning working with multi-faith partners to advance issues of common sense to all of our communities. Um, and so from, from my faith perspective, and, and I'll give you an example of why we choose issues like food policy or women's health, women's health and wellness, I'm not talking about abortion, 
Uh, we just don't go there. We're not yeah. there yet. We're not that yeah. complex of an organization yeah. yet. Yeah. Women's health and wellness, uh, food security, the school to prison pipeline. Um, it's primarily because of the way our faith is structured of taking care of the underprivileged, taking care of the needy, more than anything, taking care of our neighbor. There's a saying of the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, where he said that as Gabriel was coming to me with the laws, as he was giving me the laws that we have to, that we have to obey as Muslims, um, he told me so much about my neighbors that I thought at one point that our neighbors would be part of our inheritance as well. Like we, our neighbors could inherit from us as well. That's how many rights they have yeah. over us. Um, so we know and as, as Muslims that if our neighbors around us are going hungry, then we are sinful. Um, that is our job, it is our responsibility to make sure that none of our neighbors ever go hungry, that we have to check on them, we have to feed them, we have to clothe them, we have to help them, we have to essentially be a part of the fabric of the community. We can't just live in our, live in our houses, go check our mail, take our garbage in, take our garbage out, and just be cool and just pray five times a day and say, we're good Muslims or you know, we're, we're good worshipers. It doesn't work like that. Unless we check on our neighbors and take care of our neighbors, that, I mean, there's, there's a huge qualifiers to that statement, right? Um, so the issues that we work on, the programming that we do is informed by this concept of the rights of our neighbors over us. You know, um, there's a there's a passage in Acts that I always go to um, in our faith tradition, um, where uh, the apostles and everybody, well, everybody brings everything they have to the apostles' feet, and they lay them at their feet, and um, they then distribute them amongst themselves so that no one is in need. Um, it it reiterates the fact that we are a community. We are to take care of one another um and man i get so frustrated i don't know about you but i get so frustrated when it gets politicized when we start throwing terms out there like it's socialism um i'm like okay but what is that that what is your definition of socialism you know because if we take the literal definition of socialism and in, in the dictionary it's about uh, creating a system that takes care of everyone to make sure that everyone is in need. So that actually goes back to what you were saying that goes back to what is what I read in Acts chapter two. So why can't we just be humans and say, you know, if if you are in a better place than someone else, don't build a bigger wall, build a better table. Uh, and, and, uh, it, it just frustrates me that that gets pulled in different directions. And then, you know, again, here we go with the differences rather than the similarities, because I think we all, um, deep down want to make sure that if, look, if the people around us, um, are taken care of and they're living better lives, you're going to live a better life as well. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's a chain reaction. You, it, it's like that, that tapestry. You can't see where one thread ends and the next thread begins. You know, you can't begin to unravel it. It's, it we're all drawn together. Um, do you see this that? Also where our faith, but th this is also where our faith plays a, a massive role. That even if I take, even if I take my coffee and I give half my coffee to my neighbors, my faith, and I, I believe it's the same in, in, in Judaism as well, and I've got to say it's the same in Christianity, that even if I've given away half my coffee, that half my coffee never left. I still have it. I'll just get it in the, in the hereafter. I'll get it in the afterlife. I'll get the rewards of it regardless. Mm. I have it. It's great. I gave it away. I'm just getting more rewards, not only for my sacrifice, but also for my donation as well. So when you, there's a... There's, there's, there's a the and you watched the show The Expanse? It's no, I haven't. I shouldn't have thrown this in. There's a, it was a wonderful story, one wonderful show called The Expanse. If you haven't seen it, you absolutely have to watch it. Uh -huh. If you like, if you like some version of sci-fi. But one of the one of the group of people is called Belta Belters. They live out in. Anyways, this is going. This is really crazy. Anyways, <laughs> so he he essentially says that we believe the more you share, the more your bowl will be plentiful. Wow. 
and it, it's like the opposite of what you think, right? Right. But it's the more you share, the more your bowl will be plentiful. And it's absolutely true. It's, it's are, are we to assume that if we take care of our neighbors and we help our neighbors, that God will abandon us? That God will say, well, now that you only have half a cup of coffee, you'll never get a full cup of coffee, sucker. Exactly. It doesn't work like that. The <laughs> more we share, the more God will reward us. Whether it be reward that we can see or reward that we can't see, we have to have faith and belief that God will take care of us regardless. That we are good as long as we follow his commandments and we follow what he's taught us. Amen. I love that. Absolutely. I totally believe that. I totally believe that. Uh, Sharp, one final question. Um, why should people of faith care about interfaith work? Um, you know, let's just say, regardless of who's out there listening to us, whether they consider themselves deeply religious or just hold faith, um, you know, why should they care about um, partnering with other religions that may be different from them? Well, I'll speak to, I'll speak to Texans. I can't really speak to the rest of the country, sure. but let's say you're, you let's speaking specifically to your listeners in Texas is that faith drives policy. Faith drives community relations. Faith drives understanding here in Texas and Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, none of, none of these faith traditions are going anywhere. So if you want a better Texas, if you want a better future for your children, you want to start engaging your neighbors, whether they be of faith or no faith, but particularly those of faith, because you at least have a common morality, a common understanding, a base foundation from where you can work, right? Our morality comes from our books. Christianity's morality, the, the morality of my Christian friends comes from their books and the same thing with my friends from the Jewish community. So we can actually read it, we can see it, we can touch it, we can feel it. And it creates this baseline of understanding. And so interfaith work is important because it increases the cohesion between our communities. And when you have that foundation to work off of, it's easier to create that cohesion. We need that cohesion because Houston, Fort Bend County, the county that I live in right now is the most diverse county in the United States which is in Houston, which is the most diverse city mm -hmm. in the United States, right? Studies are right. done, it's proven, we're the best, right? Um, it's just the way it is. Everyone else is just gonna have to suck it up. But here's the thing, <laughs> the rest of the country will start to look like us by 2050. So Houston, Fort Bend County and, and the city of Houston are a great example of what we can, of, of not just like, who we are right now, but what we can become. Because diversity is nice. Right. Diversity is nice, but diversity is a geo term, meaning it says that I may be brown, someone else may be white, someone else may be blue, someone else may be black, et cetera, et cetera. But what we have to do is we have to leverage this diversity and increase our plurality. Mm. Plurality means how well do these different, different segments, how well do all the, all the crayons in the crayon box do they get along? Are they talking to one another? Are their children playing together? Are they studying together? Are they interacting with each other on social media? Are they feeding the homeless together and improving their lives together? What's the level of plurality? And so interfaith work, especially as it relates to Houston, especially as it relates to Texas is important because it helps us leverage that diversity. Otherwise, and I don't want to become like one of those old paste commercials where they would see a can of salsa and they'd say, oh, it's from New York City. It's probably a dated commercial, but we don't want to become like New York City. Oh, yeah. Everyone lives in little pockets and segments, right? You got the right. Chinese live here, the Japanese live there, the South Asians live here, this minority lives here. And then they never talk to one another. And then they all have problems with one another. Not only can we not afford that, we don't want that for our children, right? Exactly. And the only reason we avoid that is if we start talking to one another. And interfaith relations is a terrific way to start talking to one another because we talk to each other based upon our foundational understanding that's rooted in something strong. It's rooted in something real. But that mm -hmm. foundational understanding also colors my perspective 
on, on other people. So it's easier for us to engage one another that way. I love that. I love that. Well, Shark, I always learn uh, when we have conversations. So thank you for sharing your journey and your faith journey. I always am going to end my podcast with, with what I call the final four. You know, it's basketball season right now as we're recording this. So it seems fitting. And basically what it is, is uh, four random questions. So Sharik doesn't know these questions. He hasn't seen these questions. So this is, you know, off, off the cuff. Um, they're random. They're about, who knows? <laughs> I am, I'm choosing from a pile of cards here. Um, and uh, I think it's just, it'll be a fun way to, to end our times. each. And I, I, I can answer them real quick if you want. It's, it's brisket, beef ribs, carne, <laughs> burgers in that order. In that order. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> See, that was quick. That was really quick. All right. Here we go. You ready, Shark? Ready. Okay. All right. What job would you never want to have and why? I'd never want to be governor because then everyone would hate me all the time for absolutely no reason. Regardless. Uh, what makes a conversation great? Laughter. Awesome. What movie or book has influenced you the most? Usual Suspects. I love that movie. It's That's a great, a great movie. movie. It's a great movie. If you were famous, you would be want to known be known for blank. my charity. Awesome. See, easy, simple, <laughs> not a problem. Well, Shark, thanks a lot for joining us here on uh, the Faith Journeys podcast. It is great to have you today. Always good uh, to speak with you. Like I said before, it's always, uh, I always learn something when, when we have a conversation. So thank you very much. Thank you, Brad. I've enjoyed my time. Wish you success in your podcast. And I'm looking forward to listening to some more, more of these conversations. I appreciate uh, it. In, in, in the weeks to come. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. It's great to have you. I wish you all the best. I wish you God's guidance, whatever journey you may be on. I want you to know that regardless of where you've come from on your journey or wherever you are heading, you are God's children and God loves you and God is watching over you. We are all in this together. You are never alone. Our journeys take other people. So tune in next time uh, for our next podcast when we are speaking uh, to someone totally new, totally different. Uh, I don't know who that is based on where this podcast ends up. So uh, you'll have to tune in, uh, but I hope to that you will. And I wish you nothing but the best. God's peace and blessings to you all.